So this evening, I would like to, can you hear me well at the back? Is that okay? Of course. I was told to speak slowly and clearly. I have a tendency to speak fast. So I'll try to speak slowly, to be mindful of speaking slowly. So tonight, I would like to look at mental patterning, because I think you might have experiences today, and I think you might possibly have been worried about it. And I can reassure you, why is it that you have mental patterning? Why is it that you have thought when you meditate? And it's because you have a brain. And I think it's a good idea to have a brain personally. So at that level, I think it's fine. But I want to look what, in a way, how meditation can help me with a certain uh, mental patterning which can cause suffering. And first, to look briefly, and tomorrow I'll look at it more uh, at length, about meditation. What is meditation? Meditation is about cultivating together concentration and inquiry, experiential inquiry. And this is actually what works. I think it's very important to see that actually when we're sitting in meditation, we cultivate ability that we have already, but we are honing them. We are developing them more. The ability to concentrate in a certain way because unfortunately we have a great ability to concentrate sometimes, but that is relatively negative. We can concentrate too much on something and then we become very tense. But when we talk of concentration here, it's kind of like an open concentration. As John mentioned, it is not exclusive. It is an inclusive concentration. And that concentration is going to help us to be more spacious and also more stable. Then experiential inquiry, I'll go into it more tomorrow, is to look deeply into the changing condition nature of experience. And through that, in a way, developing more clarity and more openness. And the two together helps us to develop a creative awareness, which we actually are going to use more in our daily life. We're going to activate it, to cultivate it also in daily life. And that creative awareness, in a way, will help us when we encounter inner and outer condition to engage and respond creatively instead of reacting blindly because in of, often that's what we find ourselves we just kind of something happen and we react blindly in a very automatic way and the meditation is to help us to in a way recognize in a way, the whole environment of that, and then to kind of, in a way, shift it to a way where we something happened, the same thing happened, where we go less into automatism, and we have more choices, we have more freedom. And so, in a way, in terms of the meditation, it's a little looking, what is going on? It's not so that we see all the many terrible habits we have. This is not the kind of the listing of all my bad habits retreat. But it's more to see what is going on. This is what to me is interested in, uh, in, uh, with the habits. What is going on in the mind, in the body, in the heart? This is why we're looking at habits. It's not so that we feel so bad because we have all these bad habits. But it's more, what is going on? How do they work? What is the process? And so if we look at human beings, we, are, we think, we feel, we have physical sensations. And so in a way, there is a basic functioning. And I think it's very important to see that when we think, <coughs> when we feel, when we have physical sensations, this is a basic conditioning. And through that, we can express our creative potential. And this is to see that all the habits comes from, you see, I think that's why we have to be careful of thinking of 
eradicating habits. To me, this is not what it is about. The meditation process is actually taking the habits where they fix us and cause us suffering to bring them back to their functioning, their function. All the habits start from a function, an ability that we have, and then it becomes a groove, and then we feel a little stuck. So the aim is to come back to the functioning itself. <coughs> and then there is more creative potential. And so, as human beings, we, we kind of have this basic functioning, and then life happens, life unfolds. We live within a society, we live within a culture, we live within a family, we born with certain tendency, biology, etc. And these create, over time, a complex conditioning. And then this seems to, as I said before, because life evolves through repetition and adaptability, then we, we, we form grooves. It's kind of like there are grooves in our heart, grooves in our mind, grooves in our body. And things, because of the groove, go more that way. And in a way, the more we do things a certain way, the more it's going to go that way. And in a way, the aim of the meditation is to see, well, maybe I don't need to do it so often in such a repetitive way. Maybe I have more choice in the functioning of that. And also to see that a lot of these habits actually are survival mechanism, which at some point was useful, but in a way is not useful all the time. It's like if you had a key to a safe and then you try to open the key everywhere, all the doors, everything, when actually it's only useful to that safe, but you, we use it for everything because it was so useful for this safe. <laughs> it's a little the same. There was a function which then we use repeatedly because it was useful at a certain point and then we forgot that we actually don't need to use it anymore because there is a different safe or we don't need a safe or whatever. And what to me is very interesting with habits is to, the meditation can help us to see that actually they are at different levels. And according to the level they will be at, it will be easier or not to deal with them. This, I think, is very important to see that. And over time, I saw that, in a way, there were these three main manifestations, three main levels. One level intense, one level habitual, and one level light. Let me give you an example. Intense, it's important to see that we feel, we feel an emotion intensely, we think intensely, we have an intense physical sensation because something happened. This is very important to see that this arises upon a certain condition. Because the difficulty is that when we think something, we experience something intensely, it's so intense that we can only see that and then we go into generalization. It is always like this. It will always be like this. And in that way, we kind of, in a way, stuck ourselves. We kind of, kind of you know, we really fixate. If I give an example, one day I was phoning a friend, and I said, how are you? How are things? And she said, life is terrible, everything is terrible, my life is awful, it's always awful. And I said, but what happened? Nothing happened. It's always like this. <laughs> so after 10 minutes, finally she said, yes, yesterday something happened. And I was so upset. And then we could creatively engage with it. But as soon as you go into it's always like this, what can you do? How can you creatively engage with always? It's insurmountable. It's too much. So we have to see when we feel intensely, generally look. It is not always like this. Time to time it might happen. And when it happens, of course, it is painful. Of course, we feel intensely. Then there is an habitual level. And this is when we are, have a certain tendency to do things in a certain way, to say things in a certain way, think in a certain way, have certain emotion, behave in a certain way. 
We are relatively aware of it, but for sure, everybody else that we know is aware of it. <laughs> this is, it's very interesting how these habits generally, you know, we know of others, you know, that in certain circumstances, they will react this way or they will do that. There is a certain kind of biology, a certain tendency, a certain way of being. I remember once in France, we had this dinner, lunch, family lunch, my mother adores them, and so everybody was there. This was long ago when my, just recently married to Stephen, an English person. And generally he was very quiet, but this time he thought he would join in. And there was a little lull in the conversation, so he engaged my brother-in-law and said, did you vote today? And we all looked at him and we thought, oh no, oh no. This is a bad idea. <laughs> and the brother-in-law, of course, went for 30 minutes into this huge beat and shouting and everything. And Stephen never did it again. <laughs> he learned, too, that, you know, we knew it would go that way. So we kind of know there is a certain way somebody will react, somebody will be. And then there is a light, the light manifestation. And the light manifestation is just, you know, light stuff that kind of will come up. And this you can easily see in meditation. And it's just interesting to see it and to recognize it and to see as soon as re you recognize it when it's light, you see it in a different way and you're not so taken by it. Personally, a few years back, I suddenly was you know, doing the meditation, sitting like this, and suddenly I thought, hey, you are planning your luggage. So you, I was going to go to South Africa in eight months, and I was planning what I was going to put in my luggage. And I recognized that that was something I did. I was not kind of, you know, dramatic or anything. And now that I've seen it, I do it much less. Because I said, hmm, luggage, South Africa, eight months. I don't need to do it. <laughs> you know, two weeks before, yes. But when you see it when it's light, then it's easier. It's easier to be with it in a light way. That's why I think it's, it's important to see the mental pattern when they're light. The same with the emotional and the physical pattern because it's much easier to deal with it. And then it will help us a little later on. And so I would say that when we meditate, as John has mentioned already, we concentrate on the breath, we concentrate on the sensation, and then we notice, what kind of thought do I have? What is it that takes me away? And how are thought repetitive? This is what I find interesting when we sit in meditation. And I know sometimes it's not so much fun because you sit in meditation and you see that you do not have that many original thoughts you have never thought before. If you look, they generally, you've seen them before. You've thought them before. It's relatively repetitive. And that's why we kind of get kind of a little tired, you know. I've seen that before. So in a way, but just to see it, to me, this is interesting. To see, but what do I think in general? Because what you think will actually determine what you say and how you act. And thought, as I mentioned, are activities of the mind. It's part of our functioning. I think it's great that we're able to think. But sometimes we feel, it's interesting, the thought. I mean, what is a thought? It's just, as uh, John mentioned it the first night, it's just a little firing in the brain. At that level, it's just a little electricity. I mean, it's really kind of, you know, relatively immaterial. But they can proliferate, they can agitate us, they can confuse us, and sometimes we feel like we have this weight. It's like there is this weight. And so in a way, in meditation to notice, what is it that distracts? Occupy, obsess, because often that's what you will do in daily life. And that also in daily life will define a little how you are, how you act. So now I want to look at this different level, the intense, the habitual, the light. Intense. 
what we have to see with the intense level is recent condition happen. Generally, it's shocking. I think it's important to see that generally something happened. It's a little abrupt. We are not expecting it so much. And then we kind of like a little shock. And it's just not the mind which is intense. The whole thing, the body also is in shock. So the whole thing kind of, in a way, goes round. And then it's very obsessive. It's kind of relentless. It goes round and round and round. And you have a feeling you can't get out of it. You can't do anything about it. And uh, when I was in uh, South Africa last year, I had that experience because I generally do not have a lot of intense thinking. But I arrived in South Africa. Two days later, I phoned home, and I said, how is it at home? And I was told that we had been burgled in a little village in the middle of nowhere, and nothing happened to us in South Africa. But this is another story. And what was, so, you know, the computers and da-da, money and da-da-da. And I was in South Africa. And I was teaching a retreat, and I was sitting in meditation. And I could see two loop, quite obsessive loop. One, security. How can I make the house secure? But the next loop was more interesting. Revenge. <laughs> I was trying to set traps in case they come again. So it was going round the two loops. And then after a day, I was sitting, guided the meditation, and I thought, this is enough. I think it's very important to see that if something intense happened. You will have intense thought. You can't switch them off. You might have meditated for years, but if you have something intense happen, you will have intense thought, and you will feel intensely. I think it's important to acknowledge that, to be with it, to accept it. And at the same time, not identify with it and not reduce oneself to this. I am just this burglar person. I mean, a burglary happened, but I'm not always burgled, and I'm not just that. So after a day, I thought, this is, you know, security, I'll deal with it later, and revenge, it's not a good idea. Not very compassionate. And... I let it go. And this is the power of the meditative awareness. That I, I was able to see it, and I did not repress it. I just saw it. And I thought, this is enough. I don't need to do this anymore. And then it could go. But if there is not enough power in the meditative awareness, what we can do is create space with the help of the meditation. To see the intensity, to see it came upon the condition, and with the help of the meditation, the breath, the sound, the body, the loving kindness, to just say, just for a minute, let me just come back to the breath, come back to a wider perspective. I am not just that, but yes, this has happened to me. So I think the meditation, when there is a lot of intensity, cannot make it disappear. But it can lessen the intensity a little. It can lessen a little the length of, the, of it. And also it can create space in it. Just for a minute, can I just be aware of my breath? Can I just be present to my body? Can I just be present to the sound of the bird, the sound of the children? Just to kind of open up. And of course it will last a minute, two minutes, and then back to the... Then again, you can go back. I think it's very important that when it's intense, what we have to do is create space. But if we try to stop it, of course, the, 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 the energy of it is quite strong. So I think it's very to be aware of that. That we can help us to, in a way, less intense, less long, but we cannot stop its effect straight away. And also to see that it can also be what I would call positive obsessiveness. I mean, once I was teaching a retreat, and after a day, somebody came to me and said, I'm leaving tomorrow. And I said, 
what matters. She said, well, I fell in love two days before coming. I am sitting in meditation. I'm thinking about the guy all the time. I prefer to be with him. I mean, this was a choice, you know. I couldn't do anything about that. But to me, it was interesting. It's not just to see intensity just in a negative way. We can also, in a way, be intensely into something positive. And I think, again, it can make us a little kind of too excited, to a little kind of, nearly kind of a little unstable. And I think then again, we can be very happy. But the meditation can help us, the breath, to how can I be happy in a way which does not destabilize me, in a way which is not only seeing that, but again seeing a wider perspective. So I think this is where the meditation can help us, to kind of be stable, that it be intensely positive or intensely negative, and also to have more openness instead of just being that. Then there is the habitual. And in the habitual, I think what we can see, that's what we most see most of the time when we sit in meditation. If nothing special has happened before we come here, we can then start to see these grooves, this channel. And we can start to see, we sit in meditation, we try to be with the breath, and whoops, we go there. Whoops, we go there. And if you notice, over time, yes, you kind of go to relatively similar places. There is kind of certain grooves. And to me, what is interesting is over time with the meditation to notice the texture. I know this is a bit strange to say the texture of the thought. But I feel over time, if we could get to the beginning of the thought, because often we find ourselves nearly at the end of it. But in a way, with the meditation, we can start to see we are with the breath, and then what is it that, what, what is the thing, the texture, the, where does it take me? And I saw this very clearly with daydreaming, because I used to be a serial daydreamer in meditation. This was my main activity when I started and I was sitting 10 hours a day in Korea as a Zen nun, and it was just, you know, daydreaming, daydreaming. And my favorite daydream was, I am going to go to hermitage, I am going to practice meditation hard, I'll be awakened, and then I'll save everybody. This was a favorite one. <laughs> Until I realized I was not meditating. I was dreaming about meditating, which was much easier in, in some ways. It was much faster result, I mean, in the dream, not in the reality. And then I started to see that it was so gooey. It was like, mm. it was like, you know, if I was, if I had, and it was just like, like kind of like, you know, if you're into chocolate cake, it's like, mm. it was so seductive. And then it took me some time to realize why was it so seductive? What this kind of just going in there. And because it's a mono-reality. When you are in a daydream, it's wonderful. Because it's a mono-reality that you create. You do everything. It's like a film where you do everything. You are the actor, the director, the screenwriter. You even sell the peanuts. You do everything. <laughs> so everything goes according to plan. But the problem is that if you do this in daily life, you can be very frustrated. If you dream of the wonderful children and the wonderful husband and they come back cranky, and you think, well, why are they like in the dream? And they cannot be, because in a way we are in a multiple, complex reality. So in a way, daydreaming, where does it come from? The function is imagination. I think imagination is wonderful, that we can imagine things. But when is it a function that I use when it is useful, when it is creative, when there is opportunity to do that? And when does it become more like in this daydreaming and, in a way, escapism function, which, again, can have its survival mechanism? Like, time to time in South Africa, we visit um, some, uh, a prison 
when there are some uh, prisoners who are doing meditation with some friend of ours, meditation teacher. And I was talking to one of them, one uh, prisoner, and he was saying that yes, because I was talking about thought, and he was saying yes, daydreaming helps me to be able to be in prison, to be able to be in jail, but if I do it too much, then I become frustrated. If I do it a little, it helps me to kind of, you know, lighten. But I must not do it too much because then it will really uh, be very difficult. So again, to see daydreaming, I think, can have its function. When does, but when does it become so repetitive that actually it takes me away from what is really going on now? And how can I creatively engage with it? And so in a way, to see, ah, daydreaming, back to the breath, back to the whole moment. Then another one we can see is ruminating. And this one is very interesting because it starts from the past. You're sitting here in meditation. As far as I know, you are relatively okay. Nobody is bothering you, so you sit there. And suddenly, you have this memory. Two years ago, he said that. How could he say this? No, but really, really, I was so painful. And he did it on purpose. <laughs> and then you go round and round and round. And then he does this interesting movement that you bypass the present while you're sitting in meditation and you go into the future. And the next time I see him, I'm going to get it very compassionate. <laughs> and then you prepare all the best way you can get him. And he'll say this and you'll say that. But the problem is that when you meet him again, he generally doesn't say what you prepare for him to say. So it kind of doesn't work. And in a way to see that in a way we cannot change the past. But the danger of bringing the pain of the past in the present where it is not there, the condition right now are not there. And to try and know how can we learn from the past and let it there? And how can we not kind of go into the future in such a way that we bypass the present? Because I think if you're going to meet somebody, the best thing to do is not to prepare, but actually right now to cultivate meditation to cultivate stability, to cultivate openness, to cultivate creativity, so that when you meet the person, then you will respond to those circumstances and not to the past or not to an imagined future. So in a way, when we see rumination, past, trying to come back to the breath now, future, it has not happened yet. Can I come back here? So in a way, with the coming back, the anchor, Kind of just, we go a little and then we come back. So we don't feed the habit. Then another one is rehearsing. Sometimes people are sitting in meditation and they rehearse conversation. And I want to make, and this, I would say, is generally tiring. Because you kind of, you know, it goes round and round a bit. And I think to make the difference between rehearsing, which is quite repetitive, and preparing. Of course, if you go to meet somebody, if you go to have a special interviews, you want to prepare. But you don't want to prepare too much, just enough, that you feel, yes, I have looked at the subject, I am prepared. <laughs> and then in a way, I feel we have to let it be, to trust in ourselves. And I think the rehearsing comes a little from fear. And the preparing comes, I prepare, but I know now this is enough. So, you know, we're seeing the difference between re preparing and it's creative and rehearsing and it's repetitive. To me, this is a difference. When it's creative, as soon as it stops being creative, then back to the breath, back to the moment. Another thing that happens, we can notice, is fabricating. And that is very painful. And this actually is an excellent environment for it to happen. Because you are in silence. And this is a great opportunity to fabricate. Somebody looks at you. Why are they looking at me? Why are they
only looking at me funny. What's funny about me? What's funny about them? And then you go into this huge thing when actually possibly they just had a little something in the eyes, you know, whatever it was. So in a way to be careful to notice, I think, you know, a silent environment in a group is interesting at that level. How we can so easily go into fabrication. And I think that's where the experiential inquiry is so useful. And to ask ourselves, what I'm thinking now, is this true? Is this really true? To kind of, you know, we start to see that, I would say the texture of fabricating is a little anxiety, a little fear. And then you get stuck to whatever is around. And then we go into stories. And so in a way, again, to see, I think this kind of fabricating is part of this kind of, you know, survival mechanism that, you know, if you hear sound, you quickly have to interpret it. In the savanna, you have to interpret it. Is it a mice? Is it, you know, an elephant? And you do different things. So I think that's what this, this kind of, you know, being able to imagine something if there is something a little dangerous. That's part of our kind of survival mechanism. But to see when it goes into other stories, which actually are not really useful and are very painful. So to try to see when we kind of, there is a little feeling of fear in the fabrication. And to really go back to, is it dangerous now? What is really going on now? And try to come back to the breath, again come back to, a wider perspective, a wider kind of looking at the whole situation in this moment and its safety. Another thing is judging. Judging is something, again, we can notice when we sit in meditation. We kind of start to kind of judge. Judge ourselves, judge others. This is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. And in a way to be careful, you know, I should be like this, I should be like this, if only... She gave better instruction. I'm sure I could meditate or whatever it is. But to see, and also to see that, you know, we want to, to meditate in the right way. We want to have the right posture. But there is no right way to meditate. There is only the way you can meditate. Each of us can meditate. There is, I would say, no, no, no right posture. There is only the posture that your body can take in this moment which is relatively comfortable for you. That's why I don't go, I know in certain traditions they check everybody and they make them kind of sit in a certain way. I think sometimes it can be helpful for some people, but personally I think in a way each of us has to find the way that works for us when we sit. And so in a way to be careful with the judging. Judging again is useful. I need to judge. This is a cup of water this is a bell, you know, can't do exactly the same. So in a way, judging is a very good function, and judging will become wisdom. This is a key to wisdom. But you see, when is it that it becomes repetitive, and it's like we have this little judge on the shoulder, and it doesn't take holidays, <laughs> and it kind of becomes tiring. And in a way, to see, we kind of go a little above reality. Instead of trying to be in it, we see the judging, and, and judging, that's what is difficult with judging. Because you then have the judging of the judging of the judging. So, you know, I must not judge. This is even worse. <laughs> <laughs> and just to see, it's just a friend. Ah, judging. Do I need to do it now? Maybe not. Maybe not so much. Maybe just for a minute. And then I come back to the breath. Just taking a little holiday. Think of a little holiday from the judging. That's what I would recommend. But, you know, just a little, and then you can go back to it. You know, then little holiday. So try to play with judging. Then another one is planning. As planning is really nice activity when we sit in meditation. You plan where you're going to walk. You plan how much you're going to eat. You plan, etc., etc. You plan your shopping list, you plan your retirement, whatever it is. And with planning, I think, again, it's a 
We need to plan to come here to do whatever we need to plan. But we don't need to plan all the time in a repetitive way. So it's kind of like when you see yourself planning, when you meditate, I would say do it only five times, one plan. And then stop. Another one, five times, stop. And to see, to try to see that often the best plan is when you, you think a little about it, then you let it go. And then you come back to it later. Because if we just plan, it's going to actually become quite stressful. So trying to see, okay, planning, maybe I don't do it, need to do it again. Just come back to the breath, come back to the moment. Right now, you don't have to plan anything. It's all planned for you. This is you know, one of the advantages of a schedule. You know, you don't have to plan the next thing. It's more or less kind of known. So trying to rest in that, resting in the schedule, resting in the environment. Another thing you can have is counting. Some people sometimes count. There was this wonderful person who told me he was sitting in meditation counting, counting the money in the bank, counting the shoes in his closet, and he was also an accountant, so it was a little understandable. But again, as an accountant, it was useful to count, but maybe he did not need to do it more of the time. He could take, again, a little holiday from that. Or measuring, I think this is another offshoot, measuring to measure ourselves, you know. And generally what is interesting here is that everybody thinks everybody else meditates better, you know, or they sit better, or they don't move. I mean, in Korea, they used to, one time I went to, to sit in meditation with the nuns, and they were really amazed. I would never sleep on the cushion. I would sit there, and I would not, because they would be like in two minutes... <laughs> Because they can sit anywhere, anytime. I mean, they, they, and they can sleep also very easily. And I was like that all the time. And they said, but, wow, you know, your meditation must be amazing. I said, no, I don't sleep because I think too much. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just, you know, I mean, some people will have a tendency to sleep. Some people will have a tendency to think. So in a way, to be careful of that measuring, you know, is, again, measuring is useful when does it become a habit which kind of in a way bring a little stress, bring a little kind of fixation and coming back to in this moment, just to be with the moment as it is. I don't have to measure myself. Another one is comparing. And comparing is interesting. It's comparing minus, they have more than I, or my comparing plus, or look at me, I'm better than them. And in a way, kind of see that the comparing has a kind of certain usefulness, certain function. If people have less than us, we can be compassionate. If people that have more than us, or we can be inspired by people, by whatever, if we compare ourselves. But when it becomes kind of comparing and judging, then it can, like, we, something is missing. And in a way, it stops us from really appreciating what we have. So trying to also be not in the comparison to the one retreat where you had that amazing experience. It was in the past. I'm sure it was a wonderful experience. But you can't have the same. You can have another one, but you cannot have exactly the same because it's passé, not now. So you know, we're trying to really be here with what is going on here, with the potential we have right here right now. And then there is a light occupying thought. And to me this is one of the key in the meditation, to be aware of the thought when they are light. So that we can deal with them much more easily and we can also start to see how they start. Because you can have a light thought which can quickly become habitual and then intense. And so if you kind of start to see how they were, more at the light level, then it's easier to start to bring spaciousness around them, to be less identified, less caught with them, less defined. And it can be shopping lists, trains of thought, light planning, whatever it is. And it's interesting because then you have this funny experience that 
you really feel that you are meditating. You are with the breath, and then you go off a little. Oop! Breath. And it's kind of like there is this kind of awareness, and at the same time there is this light stuff. And, and actually, just to see that, that yes, I can be concentrated, I can be present, and then I go off by this kind of light occupying thought. And then I come back. And in a way to play, to learn to play with the light thought and with the meditation. And also, in a way, I think to, with the meditation, to see how the mental, the emotional, and the physical are all really, in a way, together. So you have, I would say, the light, habitual, and intense manifestation of emotion, and the same with the physical thing. And so, in a way, to, to see that one is not separate, but when, once we start to see the thought, we can also start to see, but how do I feel? We can also start to feel, how am I in my body? So that we can start to see more how they kind of, in a way, feed each other. How an intense emotion, sensation can lead to thought or certain thought can lead to the emotion. And just start to see, not to judge them, but start to understand how they, in a way, conflate each other and kind of, in a way, intensify each other. And I feel when we kind of start to disengage them a little, and again, we can bring a little more spaciousness. We'll see, oh yeah, I am feeling that here. Oh yeah, I'm contributing to it with my thought. And so we can start to disentangle a little the way this kind of these habits seems to be very solid. But actually, I would say they're not as solid as they seem to be. And that's why I like to finish by the, the four stages to kind of look at how, in connection to the habits and to breaking free of habits, I would say there are four stages. The first stage is, is at the end. You go through the habit, and then at the end of it you can see, Ooh, oh yes, I was in that loop. That it be an angry loop, or a sad loop, or upset, or whatever it is. Oh yeah, hmm. And so in a way you have to go through it a few times to see, that's what I do. Oh, yeah. Because generally we're so caught in it and so identified, we think it's kind of, that's what is going on. But the meditation makes us see it's not necessary to be that way. But in a way, at the beginning, we only see it once it's stopped, it's finished. The energy of it is gone. And we see, oh, yes, that's what I did. That's what happened. Then there is a next stage, which is the most difficult one. You've been meditating for a while, and then you see yourself in the middle of it. And it doesn't make, it doesn't seem to make a difference. So you see yourself really angry, or really low, or really jealous, or whatever it is, and you're really aware of it. And actually it feels worse, because before you really believed in it, this is the way it is. Now you see, ah, oh, no, this is not necessarily the way it is, but I am doing this, I'm thinking this, and I can't stop it. And you think, but this doesn't work, this meditation. It makes it worse. And I think, in a way, we have to be kind to ourselves at this stage, because I agree it's frustrating. You see it, and it doesn't seem to make a difference, but I would say it does. Because the fact that you see yourself in the middle of it Actually, I would say reduce the intensity. You're less identified with it. You're less caught in it. And generally, it doesn't last as long. And for me, this is already an improvement. And then there is a third stage, which is, I would call, beginning. You start to see the trigger. You start to see that you are not always like this. You're not always doing this 24 hours a day. It happens. It happens upon certain condition. So you start to see the trigger, and you start to see the contribu contributing factors. And then you start to kind of do what I call creative distraction. <laughs> you know that, oop, if I go that way, it's going to be painful, so let's help myself. 
I used to have a tendency when my husband was away at the beginning of our marriage, he would go away for a week to teach somewhere. And within three days, I was in a terrible funk. Really, really, really terrible funk. And then he would phone and I would really kind of be quite unpleasant on the phone. <laughs> and this happened a few times and then I thought, but what's going on? What, what's going on? So the next time the condition was there, he went, I thought, okay, now I'm going to look. And suddenly I saw the thought. I saw the sentence. It was a sentence which would set me off in this kind of spiral. Or and I saw the sentence, and I went and did something else. I went for a walk. I went to read a book. Another time he went away, I saw the thought. Okay. I went for a walk, and it went. Never to return again. I can't even remember it now. But at that time, it had such a power that I thought it was so real, so true, when actually it was totally fabricated. And that's where it showed me that actually we are building the power of the habits by just repeating them. That actually the meditation dissipates the habit, but actually every time you come back to the breath, you're not feeding the habit and you're dissolving its power. That's what we do in meditation. As soon as we come back to the breath, we're not feeding it. But we're not rejecting it either. We're just saying, we make the choice. I am not doing that now. I prefer to go back to the breath. And so in a way, that beginning, once we start to see the trigger, and we do this creative distraction, creative activity, then I think we, we, things start to shift. Then we start, we before you're going into one of your negative habits. So you've done this for, let's say, 30 years. We have reacted in a certain way. Something happened, and you go into it. And just before you're going to go into the habit, which is a survival mechanism, which is the way you deal with that situation, you see, but maybe... For the first time, I could do something else. And what is interesting at that moment is that there is an incredible fear of doing something we have never done before. And this is why often we don't change. We prefer the pain of the known than the non-pain of the unknown. But if the power of the meditative awareness is strong enough, you decide to do something different. You go beyond the fear. And then you experience an amazing ease. And you think, but why did not I do it before? It's so easy. But because you could not. In a way, the power of the habit was stronger. And then what is interesting, at that moment, you will not do it again. And the reason you will not do it again is because then you see how painful it was for yourself and, your, and for others. And out of that compassion and wisdom, then although you might be tempted to go that way, you won't because creatively you will think there is another way to deal with this situation. There is a more compassionate way for myself and for others. And so I think in a way these four stages, it will depend. Some, some habits will be easier to go to the stages of before. And some very strong habits, you might for a while be stuck in the frustrating stage of being in the middle of it. But at least you will diminish the intensity. You will diminish the length. I think if you have a tendency to be angry, it's better to be angry for a day than for a week, personally. You know, or for just 10 seconds. 
I think it's important to see that meditation is not necessarily going to make disappear certain very strong tendency we have because they could be also biological and cultural and many different ways. But the meditation really can make them less intense and last less long. So I think to be careful of seeing kind of meditation as a magic wand, but I see more as a kind of a tool, as a help in kind of, you know, working with our habits. So this is what I wanted to say today. So we have a little time left if uh, anybody had uh, some question or some comments. With, uh, I would say the same principle apply with physical sensation, physical habits. I think addiction is a little something else. Let's say you have intense habits, and then if you move further on that scale, then you will go into addiction. Addiction is, I would say, kind of a habit, intense habit intensified. But I think, in a way, certain physical habits, I think addiction is not just physical. I think generally it's also psychological and it's also mental. It's kind of a whole thing together. And often I think certain addiction are kind of a, a way to survive. It's kind of, again, a survival mechanism. So in a way one has to find a better coping mechanism because some addiction are very destructive for ourselves and others. But I would say in terms of physical sensation, yeah, I think with meditation you can notice kind of, I would say, the light sensation. Then you can notice what I would call habitual sensation. Like, you know, we have certain way our body feels. Like for myself, I know my stomach has a tendency to be bad. I have a tendency to have sciatica. And so there is a kind of a certain kind of a physical sensation which are recurrent but are not always there, they arrive upon conditions. So that by learning them, by being more conscious of them, then in a way I learn to deal with them in a different way. So now I have very rarely pain in the stomach or my sciatic, I have, much, I have it much less because I learned what are the trigger, what is the contributing factor, how can I be aware of my body in such a way I don't do the things which will contribute to it. And then the intense one is where we kind of, you know, we have intense sensation. Yeah, they can be like kind of addictive intense sensation or you can have what I would talk, but that's kind of something else. I would talk more of kind of what things which happen suddenly. Like at the moment, personally, I have these weird things with my shoulder. I have, uh, let's say I have these recurrent recently three months I have pain in my shoulder and now it's kind of getting a little worse and so most of the time it's fine and then I just do a little movement and it's like I have this kind of shooting pain in the shoulder and so at the moment I'm kind of you know learning to kind of you know how not to do it in a certain way and at the same time when I have it okay be with it be with it you know so kind of working with it, trying not to aggravate it, at the same time, you know, do what I can do with it. So, yes, I think at the physical level we can have, it seems to me, again, the three level. And with the three level, again, we can work in a slightly different way. With the light level, it's interesting to see what we do. Can I just be with the light level of, you know, a little pain in the stomach, a little pain in the kind of, uh, in, in, in the back? and not go into, oh, this is it. You know, I'm going to have this terrible illness or whatever. <laughs> but just kind of being aware of it comes, it goes, 
That's why tomorrow I'll talk about experiential inquiry with sensation. It's interesting, even if you have a strong pain, it comes, it goes. So, yeah, I think the same would apply. How realistic do you think it is to um, cultivate meditation in an environment that is quite abstractive and contrary to it? For example, city life, pressurized jobs, and or even worse, when, when perhaps you you're in sort of quite a violent um, situation with violent spouse or how? Well, I would say again to see the two go together: the the concentration and the inquiry. And I personally, I would say they can be applied to any situation. But there is a difference with what I would call formal meditation. You sit down. If somebody is beating you up, you don't want to say, sitting down, sitting down, beating, beating. You want to get out, you know? And, you know, I, was, I used to be a trustee for a um, foundation to help battered women. And, I mean, you know, if your husband beat you up, I mean, the first time you, you get out. Or you try to find a way so that, because it's not easy to leave. So how can I leave and you know, work with the situation? Who can help me? So in a way, I would say in any situation, I would say meditation can help you to be stable. I think this is important, to be stable. And how can I creatively engage with this? Do I need to, to flee? Do I need to do something about this? How can I be with this? So in a way, it's kind of awareness. It's not just kind of sitting. It's, we cultivate certain skill, the skill of concentration, the skill of inquiry, the skill of creative awareness, which I feel we then take to any situation. But it is true that the more intense the situation will be, the hardest it will be in terms of how long we can sustain the meditative awareness and not go back to a survival mechanism. I mean, we also have to see that we also have a certain limited kind of amount of energy. So I would say, you know, if you have a tendency to be really tired, then you have to see that as soon as you'll be tired, as soon as you don't sleep well, it will be harder to be stable, to be open, to be creatively aware, because, you know, you can still do it, but it will require, require more energy. So again, it's kind of seeing how can I be in this situation? And is this situation really damaging to myself? Because it's not just about meditation. You know, can I, uh, can I, can I be in a situation which is relatively safe? This would be the first thing. Can I be in a situation which is relatively creative and constructive? So you have some people who have stressful job and they thrive on it. But often they can only do it for a certain period of time, unless they kind of, you know, like Margaret Thatcher, who could only kind of sleep five hours a night and then she was rowing to go all the time. But I mean, the consequences were depending on which side you were on. <laughs> but some people have lots of energy and they can be in stressful job and they thrive on it. And some people not. I mean, I had a friend who was in a PR, and he had done lots of meditation before, and he was with this kind of terrible woman. We would, you know, she would lie all the time, and then he would have to kind of, you know, find a way to cope with this as his, as his uh, PR person. And so for three months, he did not do it forever, but for a few months, his work, his meditation was, he would phone her, he would get so angry, then when he put the phone down, he would intensify the anger, and then he would just say, let it go. That, that was his practice. I mean, <laughs> not everybody wants to practice that way. I think just, you see, in a way, one has to find, you know, how, what works for one. How is it for one? Kind of, you know, what... And so to kind of look at the inner condition, the outer condition, sometimes some thing can work for a little while for somebody, then they have to change. Sometimes they have to change themselves, sometimes they have to change the conditions. I had a friend, she was a journalist for 
a newspaper and she was really hated it, hated it. Every year I would see her, every year she hated it. So she started to do another Montessori training. You know, she was going, and so every year I would say, oh, have you finished your course? And she said, yeah, 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 you know, next year I'll do that. You know, forget the newspaper. Then the next year I said, how is it you teach it? She said, no, 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 I'm working in the newspaper and it's great. I said, how come? She said, one day I went into the newspaper and I decided to look at it differently. To look at the work, to look at the people differently. And it was okay. And for somebody else, it would have been better to just go and teach in the Montessori school. So I think, again, one has to look at the different factor. And it seems to me the meditation will help us, and also the meditation can be done in different ways. To me, it's kind of here we cultivate something. The stability, the openness, the concentration, the inquiry, the creative awareness. And then each of us in our life, in a way, have to cultivate the muscle, have to exercise creative awareness. And at the same time, do a bit of formal meditation to sustain it. And then see how I can do it in my own work. But we'll talk more about that on the last day, on Wednesday. So my time is up. And now there is walking meditation, and then we meet again here at 8.30 for the final city. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.